everybody. How you doing? Good. Is this thing on? Is this thing on? Yes. Some people say yes, some people say no. Okay. Well, welcome to E3. My name's Eric. Um, I'm glad you guys are here. This is the first week of this series we're doing on the book of Nehemiah. And as, as Dan uh, mentioned, I'm terrifically excited about this series for a few different reasons. I, I really do think that God has... Um, has something for us as a community. I think there's something, something specifically uh, specific that he wants to do in our community. And I think that we'll see that through the life of Nehemiah starting tonight and, and for the next seven to, to eight weeks. I'm going to tonight just kind of unpack some of the some of the big picture stuff behind the book, what's going on in the background of the book as Nehemiah is writing it, and also kind of talk through the first 10 or 11 verses of, of the book itself and kind of just get, whoa, kind of get this idea of, of what, where we're going to go with the book of Nehemiah and some stuff that we're going to hopefully encounter. Um, but I want to start with the idea of, or with the sort of some ideas of what Jesus kind of gave his followers in terms of identities. Like Jesus calls his followers lots of different things. He calls us sheep. He calls us disciples. But uh, tonight, for our purposes, I want to focus in on these two labels that he gives us in the gospel uh, of, of Matthew in particular. So we're going to put up Matthew chapter 5 on the screens. I'm just going to read it and we're going to talk about it. Jesus says this, that you, and he's talking to his disciples here, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. He goes on to say, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Has everybody kind of heard, you know, Jesus' followers referred to as salt and light? You know, it's a concept that's basically familiar. I'm assuming even though you didn't raise your hands, that that's a yes. So salt and light. I've got some salt here. I've got a light here. And I just want to talk about these metaphors for just a couple minutes because I think they're important to where we're going to go with the book of Nehemiah. Salt is an interesting choice because salt, uh, you, you know, you put it on food. It's known as a flavor enhancer. You put it on food to bring out the flavors of the food, to make them more bold, to make them more rich, to make them more palatable, to make them more interesting. One of the translations of the Bible that a guy named Eugene Peterson did, is when he translated this, he said, you are the salt of the world designed to bring out the God flavors of this world. And I love that idea that salt is a flavor enhancer. So next time you meet somebody, you'd be like, who, who are you? Like, I'm a flavor enhancer. Hello. <laughs> but this idea that we are there to bring out the stuff that God's already doing in the world. See, I believe this about God. I believe that anything that we want to do, any place that we want to go, anything that we dream up, God has done it first. He's been there first. And it's our job as his people to be salt and go like, 
okay, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? How can I bring out the flavors of what you're doing? Now, the interesting thing about salt is if you put too much of it on a food, if you try to make salt your meal, it's not going to be very good, is it? But if you take something that just needs some flavor, needs something enhanced about it, and you put the salt on it, you've got an amazing meal. Now, light is an interesting thing. Um, I don't think that in the modern world we can really understand the significance of the metaphor anymore. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a German pastor, priest in, in world, during World War II, said that we who have light and street lights can know nothing of the terror of the darkness. And so when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, I, I got to thinking, like, what does light, what would light have meant to those people? Like, it would have meant security, a fire, some place to keep like the wild animals at bay. It would have meant home. It would have meant food. It would have meant cooking. It would have meant hospitality. And the other thing about light is that does light coexist with darkness? If there's light in a room, is there darkness in a room? No. Where light happens, darkness runs away. So these two metaphors are kind of really sort of basic and essential, but I, but I got to thinking about this, and there's another level that I want to kind of go to with these two ideas. And that is that the idea of salt and light being active and universal. See, I think we're pretty good at thinking about, well, I'm the salt of the earth. I'm the light of the world. I am, I am, kind of be statements. But I think there's another way that salt and light work, that if we just think about it, it kind of becomes a little bit of a game changer. And, and the, what I mean by active is this. In a container like this, is this salt being effective? But it's salt, isn't it? But it's not being effective. In order for salt to be effective, it has to come into contact with what? Popcorn. Something that needs to be salted. Salt is only being effective. That's the fourth time I've salted that bowl of popcorn today. I really, it's not any good anymore. Trust me. Salt is only effective if it comes into contact with something that needs flavor. That's something that is waiting for salt to be poured onto it. If it sits in a container, it may be salt, but it's not being effective. Salt can be active. It needs to find things to enhance the flavor of. Same thing with light. Anybody walked, ever walked around in the bright of the day with a flashlight? It's not very... It's not very it doesn't have much of a point to it. Same thing like, Scott, can we go ahead and bring all the lights up? Now, this is a light. The light is on. The light is plugged into a power source. But with all the lights on this room, is this light very effective? No. Let's bring all the lights down now. As the darkness increases, this light becomes a little bit more effective, doesn't it? Light needs darkness to be effective. It is active. It can go out and look for the darkness. And when it finds the darkness, everyone can go, bam, that's light. Did you see that light? We can bring the lights back up. Thank you, Scott. 
I'm going to turn this off, not because Jesus has left the building and we're no longer light of the world, but just because it's a little distracting. Salt and light, active and salt and light, also universal. And what I mean by that is, uh, just to be honest, like I read these statements by Jesus about salt and light. And when I look at my life, I don't feel like salt and light. Sometimes I just feel like Eric. And truth be told, Eric's kind of a mess sometimes. Eric's not good at salt. Eric's not good at light. That's left for people who really have their, you know, lives together, like, you know, Pastor Dan or, or Trace or, or Dan Durenberger. You know, everybody else is salt and light, but not me, right? But that's not true. And it's not true for a couple of reasons. It's not true because Jesus basically says, get this, all, you, all of you, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Everybody. Not just the people who have it together, even though we know they really don't have it together. Not just the people who look good, not just the people with fat uh, pocketbooks, not just the people with, with the great cars, not just people who seem to pray all the time. Everybody is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And that's kind of a mind blower to me because I, I would like to think that like, oh, well, maybe not, God. I don't really, I'm not, I'm not the salt of the earth. I don't do anything that seems to be very effective. You know, these other people are out doing these amazing things for God. They're the salt, they're the light, no. And the other thing I kind of want to get at is the other reason it's not true is because uh, the, Bible, the Bible tells us that we are made in God's image. All of us the same. And part of God's image is that God, we're told, is always searching for people to help. That God himself is sort of salt and light. And if I somehow don't think that I'm salt and light, in a way, I'm really just calling God a liar. You, God, may believe you made us all in your image equal, but not me. Everybody else is salt and light. I'm somehow different guy. I think you made me from a cheap knockoff that you got somewhere else. It's not true. Every single person in this, in this room, every single person you lock eyes with is salt, is light. And that means that you are capable of changing the world, changing history, changing eternities forever. And that's what Nehemiah is going to challenge you with. That's what Nehemiah is going to teach us. That what really matters is not being like some kind of super Christian, some kind of super spiritual person. What matters is a moment where you realize God has laid something in front of you and you go, okay, I'm going to respond. There's a question that I, I think we're going to be confronted with over and over again in the book of Nehemiah, or I would like to suggest that you read Nehemiah with this question in mind, and it's this. What happens when God gets hold of a man or a woman and they decide to respond in obedience? What, what happens when you decide that you're really salt and you're really light and you're just going to obey? Because that's Nehemiah's story. I believe this series that we're going to go through can change your world forever. It can change your life forever. It can change eternities forever. So, we're going to take a look at some scriptures. Um, 
before we get to Nehemiah, I want to take some time to unpack what I would say where Nehemiah is in his life and in the story of God. And to do that, we're going to start taking a look at a book called Deuteronomy. It's in the early part of the Bible. Let me sort of set the, the, the table for you in a sense. Um, a guy named Moses leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt. He leads them for years and years and years, and they are on their way to the promised land. They are on their way to a place that God says, I have prepared for you, for my people. And Moses leads them right up to the promised land. But God has told Moses, Moses, you will not enter this promised land. In fact, Moses, you're going to die. You're going to die with the promised land in sight. So Moses has led, led these people all this time and he's about to let them cross into the promised land. He knows he's not going. He knows this is his last moment. And so he chooses to basically preach a message to them, to remind them one last time, people of Israel, people of God, this is what God expects of you. This is what matters. This is what's important. Please remember this. The, the sermon goes on for about 35 chapters of the Bible. If you think it's hard to hold going to the bathroom at E3, you should have been there. I promise you. It would have been murder. People like finding trees to go behind. I, I, I just can't imagine. So Moses preaches this one last message to God's people. And he basically, it's very simple. He, he spends a whole huge first part of the book going like, Israel, God's people, if you get this right, if you get this right, and all God wants you to do is love him and love others. There's these commandments, but what it boils down to, people of Israel, is it's love God, love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? Love others as yourself. Get this right, and this is what's all going to happen. You will be blessed. You will enter this land. It'll be awesome. But then he turns a corner, and there's always, there's always a, you know, a but. But, but if you don't, like some bad stuff's going to happen. And we're going to read from uh, chapter 28 in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's when Moses is basically saying like, Israel, if you turn aside, Israel, if you decide that you want to do life your own way, this is what's going to happen. And he lays it out this way in, in 20, uh, chapter 28, starting at verse 36. He says this, the Lord will exile you and your king to a nation that's unknown to you and your ancestors. There in exile, you will worship gods of wood and stone, and you will become an object of horror, ridicule, and mockery among all the nations to which the Lord sends you. Israel, if this is what you want, if you want life on your own, if you want life without God, God's people, you will face exile. You'll be taken out of this land that God has promised you, You'll be taken far away and you will be made a mockery. It's harsh. But then two chapters later, he also reminds God's people of another attribute of God. And that is that God loves to welcome people back even when they've blown it. Even when whole nations have blown it, God says, but I will always welcome you. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 30, just a few pages later. That if at that time, so if you change your mind, Israel, 
You and your children return to the Lord your God. And if you obey with all your heart and all your soul, all the commands I have given you today, then the Lord God will restore your fortunes. He will have mercy on you and gather you back from all the nations where he has scattered you. I love this part. Even though you are banished to the ends of the earth, the Lord your God will gather you from there and bring you back. No matter how far you've gone, Israel, God will find you and he will bring you back to this land. So, why is this important? It's important, first of all, because this is what happens to the nation of Israel. Over time, uh, they establish a monarchy. Over time, the monarchy starts really not following God's ways, doing really, really bad stuff. And they are conquered by an empire. They are conquered by the Babylonian Empire, uh, kind of in the 600-ish B.C. They come in. They basically, Israel is now subservient to the Babylonian Empire. And then it gets worse because they make Babylon even angrier. And so Babylon shows up one day on the doorstep of Jerusalem. They, and they destroy the city. They go to the temple, the Lord's temple, and they plunder it. They take out things, the places that they're not supposed to be able to go because that's where God's presence is. And they take things out of the temple. They rob the temple. Devastation. And then they do exactly what was promised in Deuteronomy 28. They take people into exile. The best, the brightest, the leaders of Israel, they take them, gone. Now you're living in Babylon. How do you like that? You're gone from the land. Deuteronomy 28. What happens next is that another empire arises, the Persian Empire. Uh, anybody seen the movie 300? This is the Persian, this is the Persian Empire, okay? So this is who we're talking about. Um, they rise up. They conquer the Babylonians. They have a different approach to life. They actually want people to be sort of at their homes. So they start releasing people. Go back home. If you're in exile, go back home. The Jews are no different. They say, you're from Judah. You're, from, you're Jews. Go back home. So people start to return to Jerusalem. It's not always smooth. Like they, they, we'll see is like they kind of make the Persians mad and some, so some kind of crazy stuff happens. But basically, that's what's going on when Nehemiah writes this book. The people of God are starting to return to the land. And the reason that's important is because I would suggest to you that Nehemiah knows exactly where he is in God's story. And that is between Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 30. Nehemiah knows that his people have turned away from God and they have been exiled because Nehemiah is living in exile. But Nehemiah sees a restoration happening. He sees people going back to Jerusalem and it doesn't just mean that they're going back to Jerusalem because springtime is awesome in Jerusalem. No, it's because they are returning to God. Nehemiah knows exactly where he's at in God's story. So, before we actually get into the text, I want to just kind of say two things about the book of Nehemiah that you're going to encounter and that I think are important. The reason I think that Nehemiah is such an awesome sort of book for us to go to, go through, is that it's like, it's like us. 
There's no overt miracles in the book of Nehemiah. Do you know that? There's no walking on water. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no raising from the dead. And in that, like Nehemiah is just like us. Nehemiah accomplishes what he does just by making day-to-day, moment-to-moment decisions to be obedient. And I think that's awesome because I have not walked on water in a long time. I'm I'm just a dude. And I think that's what Nehemiah would have said. I'm just a guy being obedient. The other thing that we're going to see in this book is that Nehemiah has a big personality. It shines through the book. It's written, most of the book is written in first person. And what we'll find out about Nehemiah is that he is a great leader. He's a great administrator. He's got a pragmatic, forceful personality. He gets it done. You want something done? Nehemiah's on the short list. You want him to do it. But that actually sets up something really, really interesting about today's uh, text. And so with all this being said, with Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 30 kind of hanging around out there, with salt and light kind of hanging out there, I want to turn to the actual text of Nehemiah. It's going to be on the screens. I'm just going to read it and talk about it. The book starts off this way. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Uh, Scholars will tell us that these are the memoirs of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Clever, I know. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Um, This is just kind of a a historical thing. The, The Persian kings would move their headquarters around their empire. Basically, if it was hot, they would go to someplace cold. If it was cold, they would go to someplace hot. Made a lot of sense. So they're at Susa, which is one of these fortresses. He writes this, Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. So he asks about the people who have begun to go home who have begun to kind of bring about this Deuteronomy 30 movement. And what's really cool about this is that we're pretty sure that Nehemiah at this point has never been to Jerusalem. He has no idea what it looks like. He has no roots to it. All he knows is that people are going back to it and he wants to know. But everything that transpires in Nehemiah starts with him as an outsider He's not been to Jerusalem. But God does something really, really interesting. They tell him this. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. This, this actually happened by the Persian Empire. Things got a little bit out of whack and the Persians actually did come in. They thought the Jews were rebelling and they tore down the walls again. So, Nehemiah has a very specific reaction to this news. Listen to this. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. So knowing what we know about Nehemiah's personality, that he's a 
pragmatic, level-headed dude. He's not a weeper. I'm a weeper. I cry a lot. But I know people who don't really cry a lot. This news devastates him. All the composure that he carries himself with is wiped away. He's broken. He's brokenhearted. The, the, the language in the text would say like, I know some of us may say, well, I fasted. I know what fasted looks. This is not fasting where you've chosen to fast. The implications of the text are he is so brokenhearted, he cannot eat. Nothing matters to him right now except his broken heart. And why? <laughs> it's because he knows what's at stake. He knows where his people are in the story. He knows we've turned away. We're in Deuteronomy 28. And these people are going back and restoration's about to happen. But no, oh, the walls have been torn down. And he just weeps and weeps and weeps. But then he does something else. He prays. O Lord God of heaven, he prays, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We've sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us your servant Moses. Does this sound like what we read in Deuteronomy 28? It absolutely does. God says, if you don't do these things, this is what's going to happen. Nehemiah says, I'm confessing to you, we have not done these things. We have turned away. But then his prayer goes on. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. Deuteronomy 30. Nehemiah is wrecked because he knows what's going on in his people's life. And then he ends the prayer this way. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. So that's the text. Spoiler alert, Nehemiah rebuilds the wall in Jerusalem. Does that appear in his prayer at all? Does he pray, God, I got this, got this idea cooking around my head. I think it's going to be big. I think I want to rebuild the wall. Uh, maybe give me some money for bricks. I need some people. No, does he pray for any of that? What does his prayer start with? It starts with, God, we've blown it. Something is going on in the world, God, and it's not right. But here's what you promised, God. I heard a pastor talking about this, and he said, Nehemiah is living between what is and what could be. 
He sees the reality of what's going on in the world, but he's also seeing what could be. My people could be back at home. So, grabbing this idea of salt and light and grabbing this idea of like, how is salt and light active and how, how do you actually change the world? How, how are you supposed to respond when God kind of throws something in your lap? You know the first thing we learn? You go on this route, you're going to cry a lot. If you are a person who's willing to say, God, I want to change the world. I want to just have a conversation that changes somebody's eternity. I want to be a part of helping some change something in the world. You better get ready to weep. Because that's the way it starts with Nehemiah. Because God breaks his heart. And he breaks the heart of a man who's probably not easily heartbroken. And I think that's saying something. And Nehemiah ends up rebuilding this wall. So we're going to build a wall here at E3 over these next few weeks. And the first thing that we could learn about putting a wall together for God or doing anything for God, about being a part of change in the world is that it all begins with tears. It all begins with tears. We think it begins with brick and mortar and money and resources. And what Nehemiah tells us is that it begins with weeping. And this is not all that, that different if you really think about it. Like things that just break your heart. We would also say like uh, these are the things that break God's heart. But it begins with tears. It begins with knowing exactly where you're at in God's story, and it begins with knowing what's at stake. Nehemiah didn't want to see necessarily a wall being built in Jerusalem. He wanted his people to be restored to God's purposes. It's not just about having the temple rebuilt and being able to go to, to Jerusalem. It's about getting back into the right sort of alignment with what God is doing in the world. That's what Nehemiah is broken up about. He knows what's at stake in Jerusalem. It's restoration. It's return from exile. So like, where do you go from here? Because some of us, I know you guys, and I know some of you weep a lot already. I know some of you guys have broken hearts already. And I could even have conversations I could point and I go, I know what's breaking your heart. I know what's breaking your heart. But maybe some of us would be like, you know what? I'm not too sure. Would I love to be a part of what God's doing in the world? Absolutely. Show me, God. But where, where do we go? Well, I uh, just want to bring up a list really quick of things that I feel like break God's heart. You know, some of us get really uptight when our neighbor in the cube farm has their music too loud at 9.30 on Tuesday, when all the time God is saying, there are things that are, are tearing apart the world the way I wanted it to be. And that's what I want your heart to break for, not the fact that they won't stop playing Kesha all day long. 
So here's just a list maybe to get you started, maybe to, to plant a seed that you know somebody or some people group or some part of town that is, ex, that is experiencing some of this and maybe God will begin to bust you up about it. Injustice, when anybody experiences some kind of different bad treatment because of who they are. Hatred. One person to another person, one people group to another people group. God doesn't like hatred. I believe that God does not like war. I believe that God does not like abuse of any kind, whether it's husband to wife, whether it's parent to child, whether it's boyfriend to girlfriend. If you know somebody who is in this, maybe God is going to push on you and say, this is your wall. When anybody is out of control, struggling with addiction and hurting themselves, God says, I'm weeping, I'm weeping. Will, will you weep with me about this person? And I'm pretty sure that God doesn't like hungry people. No, no, I'm absolutely sure, yeah. Give me a second, God doesn't like hungry people. Well, I mean, he likes hungry people. He doesn't like the fact that people are hungry. <laughs> Children, adults, people half a world away, people in Frenchtown, your neighbors, anybody who's hungry, God is saying, I'm crying. I just want somebody to cry with me. And maybe you've heard this phrase before that the prayer, if, if, if any of these things come on your radar screen, that the prayer is this, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. Not my agenda, God, but your agenda. Not the things that make me sad, God, but the things that make you sad. It starts with tears. It starts with being willing to go, I'm gonna look the darkness in the face and I'm gonna cry about it and I'm gonna be willing to be broken. I'm not gonna turn the TV channel. I'm not gonna hang up the phone. I'm not gonna send it to voicemail. I'm gonna have the conversation and I'm gonna cry because God's crying already. I wanna close this way because when I throw out words like change the world and like uh, impact eternity forever, you know, I, I think we go to a certain place that I wanna just talk to you real quickly. Because I think that we think change happens this way. Change happens with people with a lot of money who get FaceTime on CNN, who are on MSNBC or Fox News, and, and that's what change looks like. And change does happen this way. But change happens another way too. Salt and light happen another way too. And I, and I, would, I would tell the story this way. Um, how many people can tell me who Ronald Reagan is? Go. President of the United States. And, and an actor. How many people can tell me who George Herbert Walker Bush was, is, was? President of the United States after President Reagan, correct? Who was the leader of the Soviet Union when those two gentlemen were in office? Mikhail Gorbachev, right? Okay, well, now, for those of us who are young, not me, do you remember or do, did you read about in the history books a time when Europe was divided into? When there was a Western Europe and an Eastern Europe. When there was a West Germany and an East Germany. When there was a West Berlin and an East Berlin. There was a wall between the two. 
If you lived in East Germany, if you lived in East Berlin, you could not leave. Because if you could, you would. Everybody wanted to live in the West. The East was a horribly difficult place to live. So basically, they had to put up a wall that existed for decades that basically our people will not leave this place. They will not go to West Berlin. They will not go to West Germany. They will stay here. All of this kind of culminated when President Reagan and President Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev were leading our two respective sort of countries. Now, so if you know who those guys were, you have to know who this guy was. Do you guys know who Gunther Schabowski is? Nobody? You don't know who Gunther Schabowski is? You should, because he's the one who brought the wall down between East Berlin and West Berlin. Do you know that? You see, Gunther Schabowski was a mid-level Soviet bureaucrat, not a Soviet bureaucrat, I'm sorry, an East German bureaucrat. He was a spokesperson for the Communist Party in East Germany. And one day late in 1989, he was holding a press conference. And the press conference started really, really, as press conferences always do, they were boring. He was just basically saying, this is how great the Communist Party is. And one of the reporters asked him a provocative question. And they said, Comrade Schabowski, can you tell us when the East German people will be free to travel? When will they be free? And he responded to the question, and people still don't know why he responded the way he did. But you know what he said? He said, they're free to go. And all of a sudden, everybody in the, the, the press room was like, what? what did he just say? Because East Germany never lets people just go. But he said, they're free to go. And the room just kind of like went just like this room did, really quiet. The next day, realizing what he had done, realizing what he had said, he issued a clarifying statement. And I love this. He couldn't retract it necessarily. So he said this, uh, that though this decision does not impact what he called the fortified nature of East Germany and East Berlin, we will begin issuing visas to anybody who wants to leave for a day, a week, or forever. Almost instantaneously, people started lining up at the border, at the wall, to get out. And the guards had no choice but to begin issuing visas, but the trickle became a flood and soon became, became unsustainable. And literally within days and weeks of this nobody who had no army, no political power, you don't know who he is, I didn't know who he was until just a few days ago because of something he said. The wall between West Berlin and East Berlin crumbled. That's how change happens too. Because Gunther Schabowski had a moment. He had a moment that was given to him. And he chose why, I don't know. But in that moment, just like Nehemiah, he chose to do something. Change happens moment to moment to moment to moment. And it happens with tears. 
So because I know you, I, I, I know some of you, and like as I said, I know you guys are there already. I know some of you are already there and you're already active in this fight and you're like, God, I know I want to be a part of what you're going, but what you're doing, but some of us are still in that exploratory phase. Some of us don't really know. So I'm going to invite the, the band up and while they do that, we're going to take some time to just pray. And Dan, can you bring up the, the, the list of um, stuff again? Yeah. I want you to pray the prayer that we put up also earlier as you're looking at this list. These are things that I believe firmly with all of my being break God's heart, tear it into. I believe God weeps. <coughs> and I don't think God wants you to say, okay, God, I'm going to go fight injustice. But maybe you know a person that is suffering from injustice. I don't think God wants you to say, I'm going to go conquer hunger. But maybe you know a person who's hungry tonight. And so I'm going to ask us to pray these prayers, looking at this list and just being willing to say, God, I want you to break my heart. I want to weep like Nehemiah wept because I believe that I have to be salt and light in the world. And I believe that it starts with just you breaking my heart over something that you're concerned about. And would you do it now? And Evan is just going to lead us and just give us an environment. And I, I'm going to pray right now. And I just ask you guys to just sort of acknowledge God's presence here and open your heart to what he might want to do. So if you guys would, would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, any tear that, that I could weep, any tear that we could weep, pales in comparison to how much you have cried over your creation. And God, I just pray that, that with an eye towards the things that distress you, God, that, that, that we might be willing to say, I believe that change is possible. I believe that salt and light are possible. And I believe that I can be a part of it. God, just show me. And Lord, would you put it on our hearts tonight? Would you, would you open them up and would you help us to cry the tears that you've cried already? We thank you for the story of Nehemiah, God, and we ask you that we would be people like Nehemiah in our lives. Amen.